Matt Lupu podcast. We're talking to Lidio today. Oh, uh, man. How you doing over there? I'm good, man. It's raining. It's raining every day here in Albania and Tirana. It's, uh, it's not fun, but... It is a pleasure to be able to say that I have that I, I have contacts and I know people all over the world. Um, and it's a, you know, yet another benefit to being involved in classics in this way is that you get to meet interesting people who are located everywhere. So, you know, this is a, I've, so far this season, we've had one American guest on and uh, the other three, you're the third now, uh, are overseas, right? You're, you're all based in various parts of Europe. So it's, uh, it's very, I don't know, it's very gratifying. I never thought I would be able to like say that I, you know, I know people everywhere, you know, but like, I, I feel like I do now and it's, I don't know, it's cool, right? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a big, uh, it's a big benefit of being in archaeology and like history and uh, being one of those archaeologists who like actually travels and excavates and all that because then you you build those connections and sometimes they can last you know your whole life yeah yeah they know they really can and it's it that that's another thing that i i found is looking at people who've been in the you know been in the field and and made a made a livelihood out of it out of being an archaeologist or being a uh, you know philologist or historian or whoever they tend to really collect lots and lots and lots of contacts all over the yeah. all over the place and it's uh it's interesting i don't know that i'm ever going to get there you know but you know at least so far so far you know just being involved <laughs> to the degree that i was you know it's i i haven't regretted a second of it which is you know which is nice yeah, so for, sure. for those who don't know why don't you give us a little bit of background for uh, what your involvement with classics and with archaeology has been? And, and I've been asking everybody, how did you get involved in this and how did you pick this in the first place? Because it is sort of a and, and we talked about this uh, or I, I have talked about this on previous episodes, the how it's it's not necessarily something when you go back to your parents and you're at that, you know, tender age of sort of late teen years, you know, you go home and you yeah. say, mom, dad, I want to be an archaeologist, right? You know, you, not everybody gets a lot of support to do that. So what was it, what was your journey like and how did it, how did it work for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, like when I remember when I was like young, young, when I was like, I don't know, seven or eight and I, I would like watch Nat Geo and, and like Discovery and all this. And I thought it was like the coolest thing that people would dig up old bones and all this so like as a child you know that like that amazement of it like oh that's cool like I was like I want to be an archaeologist you know but like I also wanted to be like a fighter pilot and all this like <laughs> not actually a fighter pilot but you know all the cool jobs sure. um and then when it came time to decide as you know as it is for pretty much everyone who goes to college you know you, you have that big decision in your senior year what are you going to major in and you don't even really understand what that means but I really, I've always really liked history and throughout high school, I really enjoyed history. So I just kind of decided like, hey, you know, like that's a major, why not pick the thing that I like? So, you know, I, I did my undergrad, I did my bachelor's at uh, University of Central Florida, just in general history. They don't have a classics program there, but I was lucky enough to link up with a professor, Edward Dandro there, who uh, did excavations in Turkey. Yeah, the site was called Pessinus. It was about an hour away from Ankara. And supposedly it's the city of the Anatolian Phrygian mother goddess Kubile, but we never found her temple. And the excavations there have been paused for political and financial reasons. 
Um, but that was my first experience really with the classics and with archaeology. Before then, you know, it was a lot of sitting in the library, reading, you know, texts and trying to make some sort of argument from it. And when I got the chance to go there and excavate, I kind of did a bit of everything, you know, I was just like wherever they needed me. They're like, all right, you know, we need you to draw some pottery. Okay, I'll draw some pottery. We need you to excavate this tomb go help out excavating the tomb. And that kind of led to um, sort of the thing that I focused more on in my other excavations later on. Uh, I did a lot of tomb digging, so that was pretty cool. But basically from that experience, um, I, I, I was never like particularly interested in classics. Like I wasn't disinterested, but I didn't really know which direction I wanted to go. But from that experience, uh, the site was ranging from like archaic to, you know, Roman Empire, but like the layer that we were at was sort of at the Hellenistic into early imperial uh, period. And just kind of being around the professionals and seeing people translate Greek from, you know, like uh, epitaphs and all this, it was just really cool to me. So I was like, all right, like, this is what I want to do. Like, I love that these people have this knowledge. I love that you get to travel and like excavate and like touch something for the first time in 1500 years. Like, even if that thing is a skeleton, but there was just like, yeah, there's just, uh, you know, there was something really like romantic about it, but it was also like eight weeks in a place where like you rarely have electricity. There's no lights. There's like, or no internet. There's just a lot of constraints to actually like being an archaeologist like i know there's some sites that are more cushy and you have like cocktail hour and all that but this wasn't <laughs> one of those sites you know we weren't in sardis we weren't like enjoying the the nice trust fund money so after that you know i kind of asked them like hey what do i do and they're like well you need to go learn greek or latin to start all this so i went and uh did the summer program at the latin greek institute at cooney and did that for greek and then I got accepted in uh, Florida State, and I did my master's there in, uh, in classics with a focus on ancient history. So it was a lot of linguistics, a lot of philology, a lot of history, stuff like that. And during the summers, I would go back to Turkey, and uh, I would excavate at the second site up on the Black Sea. It's called Philios, the ancient city. Uh, or no, today it's called Philios, but back then it was Teos. That was kind of my academic uh, engagement with archaeology and history and then after I finished my master's uh, about a year after I was contacted by Simon Young who was uh, someone that I worked with on that first excavation and Pessinus and he had opened up this company called Lithodomos where they do VR archaeology you know to keep it short and basically they recreate the ancient world and uh, they needed a researcher and you know uh, that's what I did. So I ended up getting the job there and I worked for them for about two years, sort of in different roles. And uh, wow. yeah. So, okay. So several questions now, right? I mean, cause, cause what a, first of all, what a journey, you know, it's not, it's, it is unusual um, to have that be your, and I think, you know, right. I mean, you know, just, just listening to other people's experiences from, you know, going from that undergraduate stage forward um, it's not normal to make a, a radical shift like that and to be able to get something as difficult as Greek on board um, over the summer and then have that carry over into a master's 
Um, so uh, kudos for that, because that is that is really, really, really tough to do. And so Cooney is this, if, if I'm not wrong, it's the C- City University of New York. What, what is, so yeah. that program that you're referring to is sort of legendary inside of the field. Um, can, can you take us into that a little bit and, and just get, you know, give, give us a flavor for what exactly you went through um, to, to get that Greek knowledge? It's, it's quite something, I think. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, um, on their website, when you're like looking at the program, they tell you like, uh, many of our graduates have said this is the most difficult academic challenge of their career. And like, they, they're very upfront about it. They're like, don't do this if you're not serious. And, you know, I was born in Albania and I moved to America when I was young and like living in Florida, you like learn Spanish in school and all this stuff. So by the time I was like 16, you know, I had like Albanian and English and like my Spanish was decent. I like, I did some, like Spanish speaking competitions in Florida and all this stuff. Like I just enjoy the language. So I figure like, I'm sure it's hard, but you know, like how hard can it be? Dude, like easily, easily the most difficult thing that I've done, like more difficult than the masters for sure. Like the masters it's, it's, it's a tough thing. It takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of endurance, but it's very doable. This thing was like brutal. You know, we, we started out with like 38 students and by the end we had like 19, right? So what the program is, it's a 10 week program that you basically spend the first six weeks going through the Hanson and Quinn, you know, the, like the thick primer on, uh, on, on ancient Greek, Attic Greek, really. And then the next four weeks, you, you read actual authors, you choose like whether you want to study. So everyone for two weeks studies Plato, we read the ion. And then the other two weeks, you decide whether you want to study Thucydides, Aristotle or Homer. You basically start out on day one, not knowing the Greek alphabet, or you might know the alphabet, but you don't like know any Greek. And then on day 50, well, like really 10 weeks later, but like day 50 of the class, you're like translating Plato for the final exam. So like, that's, that's what that was for me. Like I went into it knowing what alpha and beta and gamma and omega is the last one. Like, I, I know that much. Uh, and then just 10 weeks of just brutal, like Greek, man. Like I started to dream in Greek and so did many of, you know, the, the other students in there. And it's really, it's like, it's super demoralizing. Like for some people, they just fucking, they got it. You know, they were just like on point or they had done the Latin version before. So they knew what to expect. But for the rest of us, it was like, it was absolutely brutal. You felt like, how can I not remember the imperfect tense? You know, like I remember <laughs> like not to be dramatic, but I remember almost having a breakdown. I'm like, why can't I remember this fucking tense, dude? It's just like, it's one tense, like, you know, present active and perfect like that's all i need to like no nope like and the, you know despite all that you, the more you stick to it the better you start to get and then by the end when you can start translating plato you feel like wow you know this is this is really something that i'm able to do this and then like then i started the masters and i was in like the lower level masters greek course And I would see how much more I knew about like the grammar and the structures and like what things were actually called compared to people who had studied Greek for three, four years in their undergrad, but not 
in such an intensive way where like you learn things, but it's a bit more passively. It's over like a longer period of time. So you'll forget some things. Whereas like those 10 weeks of intensive study, like things just sort of crystallize in your head to the point where like they become sort of second nature. So if you'll ask like a certain question, I'll be like, oh yeah, like perfect passive because it takes this structure and it has to be this. And like, to me, I don't even have to think about those things because of how much it was drilled into it. So long story short, it's like super intense, really difficult. But if you're, you know, if you really want to do this, it's like, it's the one thing that can like make or break you. It'll show you like, okay, yeah, this is for you. Or, you know, maybe you should consider another career in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. So and it's it's funny because the combination of really really good um, Latin or Greek skills um, and archaeology don't necessarily go hand in hand. I, you know, again, I, I I guess this is a little bit controversial, but I mean, just in my experience and maybe yours, and you know, you can disagree or or not. But I mean, I think that sometimes when you're um, sort of moving down the uh, or, or looking down the barrel of an archaeology career an archaeology masters or an archaeology PhD or something like that you know uh, especially if you're doing it in a classics department oftentimes you know there's an expectation that you're going to know Latin and you're going to know Greek to a, a pretty high level but it is not really your primary focus um, inside of that you know degree program not in the way that it would be if you were doing a pure philology degree if you were doing a pure history history degree or something like that so it's it's sort of rare to have both right to be able to to, to know greek in that kind of atomic detail um, and be really really good at it as well as you know have the archaeology chops do you find that to be the the case in in your experience or not really yeah yeah for sure and like uh i mean in my case i definitely the the people who were archaeology students they were definitely like better archaeologists on like many levels than I was um but then on like because I focus more on the philology side like I was just better at the Greek because I invested more time into it like a lot of times that's kind of what it comes down to like most people can do this if they dedicate themselves to it so it's just a matter of investment into that thing but I think that you're you're absolutely right in terms of that like it's rare that you'll find someone who's excellent at both, right? You might find an excellent archaeologist who can, you know, navigate through the text, but that's not their thing. And you might find a philologist or historian who's like really specialized and like knows their way around a specific era or a language who might also know how to like navigate the archaeology, talk to an archaeologist, interpret the evidence. But it's really rare, I think, to find someone who's excellent at both. And I think part of that, too, you know, kind of speaking from my experience, maybe you've also had the same within the classics. There is sort of this, let's say, unspoken divide where it's like, oh, well, you're a philologist, you're an archaeologist and sort of top down. You're you're cautioned not to like not to straddle too much. Right. Like pick a side and really stick to it. Like, oh, like. Personally, I never got any sort of direct, how can I say, uh, recommendation, mm -hmm. but I know that me choosing to go and excavate in the summers had an impact on the way that like I was perceived as a, you know, like committed real historian. 
and the philologists, right? You know, it's like, oh, you should be spending that summer studying the text for the Greek comp exam. And even though I was doing that, excavating during the day and then reading Polybius at night, as fun as that sounds, um, <laughs> but you weren't really advised to do that because, you know, you might be spreading yourself too thin, this and that. And to a degree, that's like, that's fair advice, right? So I, I could like, I don't think it comes from like a malicious intent or anything, but it's just sort of like how it is, right? Like the philologist will say like, well, just stick to philology if that's what you want to do. And the archaeologist will say like, well, you know, prioritize the archaeology and like know enough of the language to pass the exams and like, you know, to be able to like interpret the evidence that 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 but don't worry about, you know, doing like a critical edition of, of Polybius, right? So, yeah, it does feel like the the incentives inside of the field are set up in such a way because it, it just in one sense, it's so difficult to do this. And when I say this, I, I mean, classics in general, right? I yeah. mean, uh, you know, for, for example, you know, your, your experience um, at the in the Cooney course, sounds very, very similar to what it is to, to go through, you know, like a health science, you know, graduate program. I mean, you know, because like, I, I can tell horror stories of, you know, the first year of dental school, um, or the first, you know, the second year of dental school. I mean, you know, it just, it just got worse and worse and worse as time went on. And, you know, the amount of, but I mean, especially the first year, you know, now that I think about it, because you're really spending more time, you know, working on this didactic um, coursework, and it's just, it's just coursework after coursework after coursework, you know, to the point where, you know, you will sit in a lecture hall, and it, just like elementary school, you know, the, the professors rotate, but you don't go anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, and I used to call it the plane ride to nowhere, you know, you just, you just sit there in this teeny little seat, and you're sort of cramped in there, you know, you get a little lunch break or whatever it is. But, you know, for the most part, you know, you're, you're sat there, eight to 10 hours a day every day while people rotate through. And every course, you know, or every lecture that you're listening to is the killer lecture that you would have had in undergraduate, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, the difference being that in undergraduate, you can sort of control your schedule a little bit, whereas in, in, a, in a health science course, and you know, med school or dental school or whatever, you don't have that luxury, it's gonna, it's gonna be biochem, and then physiology, and then, you know, this and on and on and on. And it's all at the same time. And the amount of focus and attention and, and the memorization Olympics of it, is so difficult that there you really can't do anything else other than to sit there and deal with it. Um, yeah. And classics is can definitely be like that um, because there is so much material, um, and the expectation is is that you are going to be an expert um, and you are going to know all of the you're going to know all of the relevant literature for you know wherever it is whatever you know corner of the classics that you're working on and you're going to sit there and. And really, you know, bang your head into the wall until you until you get it. Um, so I can appreciate why they're making recommendations like this. But you know, this sort of leads me to another series of questions for you, right? Which yeah. is, given that these recommendations are being made with the best intentions and everything else, and you know, this is like sort of the the recipe, if if you will, right, for how to train a new classicist, a new archaeologist, a new philologist, or whatever do we wind up with a with a product at the end that is sustainable and one of the things i've been i've been sort of asking you know people 
as we're having these conversations through through this podcast is the classics is under attack broadly under attack and i think this is an uncontroversial statement mm-hmm. um the humanities in general are under attack and the classics as a as sort of a a prototypical humanities you know discipline that's under attack and if you can't produce people at the end of the training that can coherently defend you know the 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 exercise can can't coherently defend the the practice of of doing this right of going overseas and digging up all this stuff or of sitting in the library and reading all the greek and all the latin then are we not collectively shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit i don't know what are your thoughts on that i mean yeah i mean it's funny because this question is kind of like uh kind of calls to that trope of like the old guard versus the new guard and you know like you know socrates saying like oh you shouldn't write things down because it'll make your memory bad but like you know, <laughs> like bro like let's be serious right um yeah, right and i think it's it's sort of a it's sort of a difficult question to answer because my my take is maybe kind of unsatisfactory in the sense where it's like well you kind of need both right here's here's my experience, right? Like you need the people who are like hyper specialized and can really dig into, you know, the philology, right? Like, uh, you know, just someone that we know in common, John Marincola, right? Like you need a Marincola type who will be able to look at the historiography, will be able to look at the Greek and Latin and like link it all together and produce a primer that's like, you know, excellent on, on a specific topic can really dig into it. And you need the same for the archaeologist, someone who's like hyper specialized. But I think I, I don't know what causes this, right? It's a difficult thing to like pinpoint in terms of what causes it. Maybe part of that advice that we just talked about is given because that's what worked for people in the past and like what helped them establish their careers, like to become a specialist on religion and medicine let's say right or or like uh neoplatonic philosophy as uh ssg is but the thing that i think is sort of missing in, in that advice or like consideration for the field as a whole rather than just the individual uh is that you need some diversity there and part of that diversity needs to be molded with like the future in mind right and and, you know you said the classics is under attack and you're right it's not a controversial statement but part of the reason why it's under attack is because it's hard to like justify to the the normal person its usefulness right like what what is its usefulness and i think some of us within the field have also like experienced that where you're expected to take the specialized courses to really increase your knowledge about a specific topic and become you know sort of an expert let's say on something but at the same time you're also expected to like take different courses so like I took a course on Pindar which really like you know for the people who love Pindar great for them you know that's it just wasn't my thing it wasn't my kind of Greek that I like to read it wasn't what I like to work with uh, particularly but that's that's just what you know that's a part of the that's a part of the game you you have to be able to converse with other people who are studying other things right and so i think that's actually a good thing i think it's a good thing that i took that course on pindar because it let me learn about a specific history and about a specific author um but i think that diversity 
hasn't quite extended to uh, like methodology to techniques and technology and using that to then sort of connect with the outside world, right? When classics, we're very insular. We're very insulated altogether. It's a difficult thing to even get into regardless of like socioeconomic background and all that, like to even get in there, you need to know a dead language, at least one, right? And like ideally two, but at the very least one. So my my like sort of problem with classics, and I think it's kind of tied to this, is that we sort of like wrote for ourselves and we like debated for ourselves. And sometimes ourselves was just like ourself, right? Like even within the, like the seminar discussion, it, it like you never quite felt like the idea was being discussed. It was a lot more of like, well, this is my work and like, I'm just going to tell you about it. Like, I don't really care to have a discussion. I'm just going to talk. Right. And that's kind of what was missing for me. And I think that's sort of what's missing from like the old guard is that consideration like, all right, well, this is moving forward. Like the world is moving forward and like classics has to move forward with it. So how can we continue like making it a useful thing to be taught? Whereas before, you know, like a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, it was useful because you're still like rediscovering and establishing these histories that have been forgotten, right? When like my specialty, let's say, uh, I really enjoyed studying Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms, Hellenistic period sort of stuff, right? So in the 1930s, there was a need for William Woodthorpe Tarn to like write these histories, right? So then like we have the base mm -hmm. of it. But now there isn't really a need, like there's a need for people to like go in and reevaluate. Okay, so you, you, were, you were saying that, you know, there's a need to go back and reevaluate histories that were made previously. Yeah, right, right. So we, you know, there's, there will always be a need for that, right? Like that's kind of the basis of uh, classics and history and humanities is to like build upon and refute and then create new works, uh, like based upon what other people have done. Um, but I think what hasn't quite caught up in the in the like mindset in the sort of methodology is one using new technologies to to do this. Um, I mean, our archaeology has actually gotten pretty good about it. I won't I won't discredit that, but uh, that's one. And then two, like actually connecting that to the outside world in order to show the value of this world of this work right so in archaeology like we do have like lidar we do have ground penetrating radar we do have like carbon dating we have a lot of the technologies and stuff that like allows us to be better archaeologists to get more information from our samples and therefore like provide better interpretations, right? And like one of the more recent things has been like geospatial analysis, like a lot of archeologists are, you know, starting to learn GIS and all these things, which super helpful. And like, I think that is the path forward, right? Like along with a specific era that you specialize in and like maybe like a subset of archeology span or like a specific language, whether it's like Aramaic or, you know, Greek, but like Dorian Greek or something like that, like Dorian Greek. I think it's also not just recommended, but almost necessary for the archaeologist slash historian, the classicist to 
be really good at a, a specific technology as well, or like a specific tool, whether it's GIS or it's Blender or any one of the like different sort of like analysis techniques and tools that have sort of entered the field in the past couple of decades. But I think that part, while that has caught up the like the the second part of then like sort of connecting this to the outside world has lagged right like our main medium for that is museums right like that's how historians and archaeologists mainly connect with the outside world beyond that like what what do you really have right you have movies so like indiana jones and stuff but you know, no, no archaeologist is actually Indiana Jones, right? Like Indiana yeah. Jones is like a bad archaeologist, but he's like an awesome guy, right? So like he's cool and he does all this stuff, but there's that. And then there's like podcasts and stuff, right? But a lot of like a lot of podcasts uh, also are sort of dismissed from the field because a lot of the hosts, uh, they'll be seen as like, you know, like armchair historians or like not traditional academic or like popular historians. Like, and, you know, there is some value to that criticism, but to me, it feels like a lot of that criticism also sort of stems from like, uh, uh, it's like a defense mechanism, you know, like to preserve the, the thing that like the institution, you, you have to attack the other things like, well, you know, this isn't real history, you know, what Mike Duncan isn't, what Mike Duncan is telling you is like, you know, like that's well, you know, in our field, in our discussion, that that that, which again, fair point, but I think it's kind of missing the bigger picture where this person is trying to bring this history and this topic to like people who aren't gonna sit there and study Greek for 10 weeks and aren't gonna sit there and like do the masters and the PhD, right? But make it consumable for uh, a wider audience so that at the very least, like if they really care, then they can go and like research this stuff themselves, not like go get a degree, but at the very least go and ask like a historian or an archaeologist. And, and it's that latter part that I always felt was missing from classics. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny because when you when you were talking about your early exposure to this and how you got into it and just, you know, being a little kid and watching uh, Nat Geo and thinking to yourself, wow, I really want to like do that. You know, that is such a critical part of this that I think, I mean, that is how we replace, that's how we refresh the field. That's how we gain new people who want to, you know, pursue this is by, is by making sure that there is public outreach and there are people that are, that are being reached by it and it's engaging enough and it's exciting enough to to an audience of you know maybe fifth graders you know or having there be classics media or archaeological media that is aimed at that group you know of of like sort of elementary school age children is how you create a new generation of researchers and scholars and you know and academics and and so on and so forth so you know it always seemed to me like it was sort of um like the demand is out there you know and the the demand is clearly out there you know, there's a public demand for classics and for archaeology and for scholarship like this, because otherwise National Geographic wouldn't exist, right? And yeah. there wouldn't, there wouldn't be anybody to interview about, you know, Mayan archaeology or about, you know, uh, biblical archaeology or, you know, you name it, right? And, and they just, they just wouldn't produce this stuff in the first place. And it's funny that you mentioned Mike Duncan, because, you know, Mike Duncan was a, was a huge influence on me, 
it's part of how I discovered, you know, that I wanted to do Roman history and I wanted to learn more about it and I wanted to understand what what happened, you know, during the Roman Empire and and how that how that whole system rose and then eventually fell apart. And that's that's like absent somebody like Monk, like Mike Duncan and absent somebody who who was who was making kind of easily digestible media. I don't know that I would have done this. Uh, just because it, it is, it, you know, again, like you said, it is very small and very insular and very difficult to get involved in. And if you don't, you know, have the good luck to have taken Latin in high school, um, which is becoming more and more rare, uh, you know, modern day, you know, you are sort of locked out by default. You know, there's just there's just nothing you can do. Um, and if you do have Latin from the time that you're in high school and you and you pursue it through through high school and you can pursue it through college um, and you, you know, you sort of keep your chops, you know, you're at a tremendous advantage as compared to people, you know, like myself or even like you, you know, who, who came to it, you know, comparatively late. Um, although I think I came to it much later than you did, right, in terms of, you know, <laughs> academic career and sure, everything else. Sure. Sure. You know, but I always looked at it like, you know, th this is a, a way of making allies. Yeah. In my own experience, and I, I don't know if you've experienced this when you were digging in Turkey, but there's there's always been a certain amount of resistance to having undergraduate kids who are not necessarily, you know, trying to be professional archaeologists or, or, or just trying to be majors in the field, right? There's a There's a degree of resistance to filling your dig um, or, 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 or taking volunteers who aren't quote unquote serious about archaeology and saying like, well, you know, we don't want to get a whole bunch of like business majors, you know, to come out here and spend a summer in Turkey digging this site um, because they're not really serious students of archaeology. They're not really serious students of whatever else. But I always saw that as being sort of a uh, like a self-defeating thought process, because yeah. like if you are trying to create allies and you are trying to to get people interested in what it is that's going on, you know, maybe you want people who are going to be finance majors who are going to go out and make, you know, a zillion dollars and then turn around and be like, you know, the, the happiest summer of my life was that summer that I spent in Teos or, you know, where, wherever. They, they will write that check or they will make that endowment, you know, to have other kids go out and, and do it and, and have that experience. Exactly. Um, I think you and I both are, are on the same page in terms of how important outreach is. And I mean, you know, that's sort of the purpose behind, you know, sitting down and having these conversations in public. I think that there's something just very, very inherently interesting about what it is that we have done in the past and celebrating that and, and trying to, you know, put that in front of people is, is like a good idea, right? I, I guess, I guess time will tell whether or not we're going to regret this or not, but you know, it's like, I think, I think as of, as of right now, um, every conversation and every interview I've had, you know, doing this has been, uh, has been a pleasure. So yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned, you made another mention about um, very briefly talking about lithodomos and, and working on VR archaeology. I, I, I wonder if you couldn't explain what exactly that is and how that, how, what is that piece in terms of public outreach and, and what is the strategy behind, you know, something like a lithodomos or like a VR archaeology project? Like, what does that mean? 
Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll definitely, I, I would just like to add a bit more to what you were just saying. Oh, please um, do. Because <laughs> it, it's it's all tied into what eventually I'll say about Lithodomos. But I think that like that the, the story, right? Like the story of archaeology and history and like even within the specific like disciplines, I think that story is sort of missing as like a selling point to people. And, you know, that's why Nat Geo and Discovery and like history used to be. Uh, but these channels, why they are so important, because even if it's not the most academically up to date and correct interpretation, it's like an interpretation that at one point was like the interpretation or like a strong candidate for the history of something. Right. And they're presented in a way that that doesn't introduce so much friction uh, intellectually to understand it. Right. And I think that's a very important thing. And to some degree, I think we are good about it. I think to some degree, classicists and humanities in, in like the disciplines of archaeology and history are good about selling that history, but it's just not quite there. It's, it's good enough at selling it to people who are already curious, but not to people who don't know that these things exist, right? Right. And one one really good example, and it's kind of like stuck as a great example in my head. Back in 2016, uh, I went with Dr. Sarah Kraft and Steve Karacic to Serbia. And by chance, I don't know how this came about, but Steve met some, uh, I think it was in a taxi. He met some older Serbian woman and it was just chatting. They're like, oh, you know, why are you here? And he told her, oh, you know, me and my wife and some students were here because we're going to do an excavation in Gamsagratska Banya for this and that and da, da, da. And the lady was like, she was older in her 60s or something, like fairly affluent, had some wealth and all that. And she'd always had an interest in Serbian history and like the Roman imperial period of Serbia's history and all this, like not Serbia back then, but, you know, the land that is now Serbia. And she was like, whoa, that's amazing. Da, da, da. Like, hey, you know, I'll be back here in, in Belgrade in like a week. Like, let's catch up and talk then. Because I like I want to hear more about your project, what you guys are doing. Da, da, da. And I remember talking to Steve about this. Like, oh, well, that's great. I mean, she has money. And like, you know, still a master's student. Like, she has money. She has da, da, da. I was like, that's great. Like, maybe we can find like someone to help fund the excavation and all that. He's like, I mean, yeah, maybe. But like. I like I don't really care about that like I'm just gonna go and talk to her I was like yeah but like there should be something productive coming out of this right he's like I mean that would be great but like sometimes you just go and talk to people and just tell them the story you don't like there is no ask to it you just go and like do this he's like you spread the gospel more or less right like just to do it just to like get the word out there and at the time it seemed to me like a little not like short-sighted or anything, but like a little aimless, like, yeah, but like you have this opportunity, why not capitalize on it, right? I didn't say that to him. It was just like an internal thought. But then I like sat down with him and this lady and we talked and I just saw how he like handled the situation. And it really like, it impacted me in a pretty serious way because it made me realize like, sometimes this is all it has to be, right? Like you don't have to have an ass. You don't have to have like, a big story or all this, just like, just talk to these people, you know, on simple terms, answer their questions, have that coffee for half an hour. And then that's it. Like, you don't have to have like the long lasting connections and this and that, like, that's beautiful to have as well. It can be very helpful, but sometimes you just got to tell people what's going on and like, just let them be interested, right? Like without any sort of like 
goal in mind. And that, that sort of idea, I, I had always cared to like, you know, share what we do with the outside world. And that's why sometimes like I would bore my friends to death with like, did you guys know there's Greco Buddhists and like in a cave in a cave, this like Greek guy, you know, and they're like, well, he wasn't Greek. I'm like, yeah, but like they spoke Greek and that was their identity. Da, da, da. And like, he wrote like, you know, a Buddhist prayer da, da, da. and they're like, yeah, that's, that's cool, man. But like, they don't have the like hours of like reading and like investigation that I did to like, to really comprehend how special that thing is, right? Like how special these things that happened in the past are and really like how special a lot of things that are happening now are because sometimes it takes like separation to really understand like the value of something. Right. So that being said, I, I knew pretty early on in my master's career that academia wasn't really for me. Like I, I was a good student, you know, like go ask the professors. They'll say like, yeah, yeah, he was he was a solid student, like not like the best, but definitely I could hold my own. Right. So it wasn't a problem of like the material and all that or like the rigor of academia. It was just more of like what were we really doing there, right? Like you would write these end of term papers that you would get graded on. Maybe it was good enough. You would present at a conference for like other archaeologists or whatever. But to me, while I think that's super important to do and I value it and I understand why it's necessary for the field, to me, the like the sort of aspect of it that was missing is like, well, like how do we tell about this stuff to like, non-classicists right like how do we connect this with the outside world and I, I knew early on that like I wasn't going to stay in academia I wasn't going to do a PhD like if I could find a way to engage with the material that connected me like to the world at large that would be the ideal job but the that is something that back then back in like 2016 2017 was pretty rare and it's like still relatively rare but has gotten less rare right and by luck i was contacted about this position at lithodomos and so lithodomos i guess they're not really a startup anymore because they've been around for like six years but it's uh it's an australian-based company they're based out of melbourne and their their whole thing is uh recreating the ancient world right it's about like educating the public at large in archaeologically historically correct manner but while also making it you know engaging and entertaining uh, i don't like the word edutainment it just doesn't sound good but that's like that's kind of what it is right so the idea is that you get 3d artists who are very good at their job to work with archaeologists and historians who have you know have these degrees have studied this for years and you get programmers and coders who can like put together a good app and an experience and you bring them all in one studio and then they work together and they produce a faithful recreation of the past in a way that's easy to consume easy to engage with and you know at the end of the day it's just educating and fun to look at right so one of the one of the models that Lithodomos had set up was working with individual tour guides. So if you went to Rome uh, and you went and linked up with one of the tour guides that Lithodomos had uh, contracted, you would go on their tour and then this tour guide throughout the tour, they would stop you at different points and they would say, well, here's the Colosseum now. 
put on this headset, you know, this Samsung VR headset. And now with your own eyes, you can see what the Colosseum looked like in the third century uh, CE, right? So that, that was sort of like, that's the basis of VR archaeology, right? Like uh, whether that takes place in a museum or out like in the world on a tour or even at your home, you know, at one point there was even the idea of like, you know, having a sort of like Netflix sort of idea, but you know, no, people don't really want to see this stuff in their homes. Like they, they want a whole like documentary in their home, but they don't just want a 3D, like 360, 3D render to look at in their home. So at its core, Lithodomos or like Timescope in France, for example, there, there's like many, many companies now, like at different levels that uh, are doing this. They, I mean, even like Assassin's Creed, right? Like the Ubisoft team that does Assassin's Creed, like they, that, that's what they're doing. They're like, they're taking, I mean, they take a lot more liberties than like Lithodomos was, but at its core, that's, that's what it was. And so the idea is like taking all of this knowledge that's, you know, sort of accumulated within the classics. And we, we even went beyond the classics, right? We did a like Jack the Ripper tour for golden tours in UK where like you would get on and off the bus and you would go to different spots and like see where Jack the Ripper like would have killed the different victims. And there's like an audio part to it that gives you a sort of description of like what's going on in the story. And then like the tour guide, they, they are mentored to a degree to like give the tour, right? Like say like, oh, here's like, here's a 200 word description of what's going on in the scene like try and use as much of this in your tour and that sort of stuff so in essence the like the two main sectors were tourism and education right like education is a bit more difficult to get into the schools just because there's a lot more bureaucracy and standardization and all that whereas within tourism that's a bit easier because you can go to individual tour guides you can go to like these big tour companies like golden tours and you can work out a deal with them where, you know, like, let's say they want VR headsets or they have their buses. Like this was something we did for Golden Tours where on their bus, uh, they have like screens in the headrests. And within there, we would put some of these, what we call viewpoints, which were the, the, the 360 uh, renders. And, you know, you would put a bit of audio and this and that, or if they wanted an iPad, so you know, you had more of like an AR versus VR sort of experience, you know, these were all products that we were developing. And the like, the unfortunate thing is that the COVID situation sort of detracted like all of tourism for a while. And that's like, ultimately why I'm, I'm no longer with Lithodomos is, you know, they, they had to scale back. But yeah. as like, as a job, it was like, it was a fantastic job as a career. It was even better because it allowed me to use all of this knowledge that I had gained in academia, but in a way that was a bit more tangible in a way that I felt like I was actually connecting with people. Like I remember when I was in Rome and I was sort of like testing the viewpoints just to make sure that like, you know, one of the things we did was we would provide a map for where you should stand while looking at these viewpoints. And so I like, when I was in Rome and just, like I had a couple hours. So I was like, all right, I'll go and test these out. And I remember standing at one of those uh, points uh, right outside, um, right outside the forum where that man, I, the, the name escapes him, but it's the, it's the, it's the room where 
there was that like there was that map recreated by I think it was Septimius Severus. I forget the, the actual. Is it the Septizodium? It, it might have been. It might have okay. been. It, yeah. It's ah man, I I know, I'm, I know it's gonna pop back to me later. Anyway, and I was standing there and I was just like looking around, being like, okay, yeah, this matches up with this. And like a group of three like tourists just passed by. They're like, oh, what are you looking at? And I was just like, here, just look, right? And they like look. They're like whoa like what is this i'm like this is what this place looked like 1800 years ago right like this is what it was before as as far as like archaeology can tell us right and the cool thing is that we didn't have to like take liberties and make it more interesting right like we use like the most up-to-date archaeological evidence and interpretation to like faithfully recreate that and it was still interesting to people right we didn't have to like we didn't have to throw in a dragon in there and be like oh yeah but like imagine if there was dragons right no like it was just like it was like an aesthetically pleasing experience because actual 3d artists and modelers have created it who have an eye for this thing and it was done under the direction for accuracy by like an actual researcher who has a degree in this thing And it was put together by a programmer who like can make a functional seamless app that allows any person to just pop this on and pop it off. And like, you're in there, you know, there, you don't have to like go through these complicated steps. So seeing that person's reaction and be like, Whoa, this is cool. It's like, how do you have this? And then being able to say like, well, this is like, this is what I do. You know, this is part of my job. It, it is very satisfying to be able to say that more so because you see that like this person has now been introduced into your world in a way that isn't like is without friction is without any sort of like eh but you know they're just like whoa this is an awesome experience i'm like i want to know more about this thing i want to see more of this you know it brings it to life and makes it more real for these people yeah it's funny that you mentioned you know without having to add the embellishments because you know if there's if there's anything that i think um, historians, you know, at least for me, it drives me up a wall is, is watching, watching media set in a time period that, you know, a lot about really in atomic detail. I, I hate to do it, but I mean, the, the example, the example par excellence is, uh, is gladiator, you know, mm-hmm. where, where it's like, you know, if you have studied that time period, as I, you know, have, um, and really done it in major detail. And then you go and you watch the big screen experience and they're just, you know, they just, they're, you know, they're making all of these, you know, sort of different, um, I don't know, concessions for the sake of drama or storytelling yeah. or whatever. And, and I think to myself, the story that that is the real story of this time period is probably it's easily, you know, 10 times more interesting than whatever nonsense that you've come up with. You know, uh, the, the other example of, of that, that I can think of is not, not just gladiator, but, um, and, and, and again, this is, this is, uh, this is sacrilege to say this, but 300, the, I think it was the Zack Snyder's 300. Um, I remember being so dissatisfied watching that and just going, you know, this is like, I mean, it's faithful to like the cartoon or the comic book that it was based on, which in itself is great because I, I think you and I both agree that, you know, doing this type of outreach is important and it's good for the field and it's good for, I would, I would even argue it's good for society as a whole. 
um, that the more people that want to get um, interested in ancient history, the more people that want to get interested in archaeology, you know, there, there are tangible benefits to that. It, it's just that when you get somebody interested and you're doing it under false pretenses, you know, it somehow doesn't, I don't know, it, just, it doesn't hit right. You know, it doesn't land right with me anyway. So do you think that that's important that the, 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 the actual product be um, historically accurate and be, you know, true to the source material? Not to say that, that it can't be accurate and interesting, because I think we both agree that, that you can make products that are accurate and interesting, but is it, is it somehow worse when you're making a product that's very engaging that's based in the past and it is doing the work of outreach, which we both agree is good, but the outreach feels, you know, under false pretenses because now people are, are walking away with, you know, this, this kind of inaccurate understanding of the way that the Roman empire worked or the way that, you know, the, the Persian wars were, I, I don't know. I I'm really conflicted about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to hear your opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I think when when I was younger and like less involved with this sort of work, uh, not that I do this sort of work anymore, really. Um, I, I I was a lot more uh, like uh, uptight about accuracy and like, no, it, it has to be like this. <laughs> you know, it, 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 actually, you know, yeah. Alexander. Um, and I think I think a part of that is sort of like the ethos of the classics and this, you know, like need not not need like it's a necessity to have like integrity, like academically and all that. And like that's how the field advances and that's how we like learn more about what we're studying. Right. Um, but I, I think this kind of goes back to what I said earlier uh, about like the old guard versus the new guard. Right. And I, I'm all about, you know, historical and archaeological, like, accuracy and, like, faithfulness to the, to the study and the work that has been done. But I think as, like, classicists and let's just say, like, archaeologists and historians, uh, more generally speaking, we have to, we have to not be so critical and uptight of, like, some of the examples that you just mentioned and I think part of that is because they're not really pretending to be historically accurate, right? Like, I don't think anyone who, like, is critically watching 300 can at any point make any claim that, oh, yeah, yeah, well, they're saying this is what it really was like. Like, we know it's a dramatization, right? Like, we know that it's a Hollywood movie. And we know that, like, maybe younger people don't know that, but if they really like care about this, then they'll learn later on, like, oh, okay, you know, like the the part about uh, the the Persian emissary asking for a tribute of like earth and water, like as a symbolic show of like control of the season of the land, like, yeah, that that's historically accurate, right? Like we have that as like written down in the documents, but some of these other stuff, you know, like of course it's dramatizations, like, and I think the the real issue is when uh, a media pretends to like or claims to be accurate and to show a real history versus like a dramatization like ancient aliens right like 
could there have possibly been alien contact thousands of years ago yeah yeah like of course it's possible that aliens at some point like might have landed here and like just because of how we've kept history before like you know like we can't verify that but then for then these people to like go and claim like oh well that's why everything that was like you know impressive and like the last 3000 years has to have come from like aliens like you know that's where like the claim becomes dangerous right mm-hmm. but if you have like uh if you have a hollywood movie that's clearly like dramatized i i think i think we should be a bit more lenient on things like that where they're you know they're meant to be just like entertaining media rather than like educational per se like i think the way to look at that properly is to look at it as entertainment that could have a secondary like uh effect of causing people to be interested in learning right but not as like a learning tool right so you can show gladiator as like a movie to to children or to whoever or people like maybe generally interested in this and be like yeah you know here's like here's a context right now if you really care here's what actually happened and then deliver that like the 50 minute course on well like here here's what was actually happening at that time and here's like you know the struggles and with marcus aurelius and da 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 and like really go into that and then get into that part that you were talking about where it's like well the reality of this was like 10 times more interesting right but you need like a sort of like entryway for people who might not already be interested in it. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's a fine line there, I think, uh, between managing the entertainment part and the educational part. But I think we can't be so uptight about media like that being produced because in the end, you know, what you have is then like students who come to your class. And then when you reference 300, they already have some understanding of the Spartans and the Persians, right? Like, did Xerxes really look like that? No, but <laughs> but the fact that they know the name Xerxes and the Persians and that there was a war, like, that happened, right? So there is some truth that was conveyed to, to this audience. So, you know, like, then it's our job to, like, help them understand more of the history and archaeology that has been written and interpreted since then so I, I think they can be useful tools it's just you know it's a matter of like how useful uh that that ultimately come kind of comes down to us and like that's our responsibility yeah how how useful and what what is the context in which they're being presented right so it, it's funny that you mentioned this because i you know immediately i'm struck thinking about like my own elementary school education where, you know, we have to learn American history. Um, and, and, you know, the, the American history that you learn or that I learned anyway, I, you know, I don't know what's going on in a fourth grade class nowadays, but I mean, you know, when, when I was, when I was like sort of at that age, you know, the, the, you almost get like a cartoon version, you know, of like the first Thanksgiving, you know, you get like a, you get a, 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 a child's version of, the Civil War, right? Um, and you sort of get American history in broad strokes, and you learn the general order, and it's usually centered around the different conflicts and the different wars. You know, you you learn the story of the Mayflower, and then you get like nothing happened for a long time, and then like the Revolutionary War, yeah. and then and then and then and then the Civil War, and then like World War One, 
and then World War II, and then like, and then Vietnam, and that's it, right? You know, and I guess now we've had a couple more to throw on the pile. But I mean, you know, the 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 point being though that like each one of those eras, you know, comes with its own mythology that you're sort of expected to learn as a kid. And I think that is not something that is unique to the US. I think that just, you know, virtually every country on earth teaches their own history in, in much that way where, you, you know, because there's only so much bandwidth that a child has, you know, to, to be able, you know, you're not going to go into like atomic withering detail about you know what the what the different you know market forces behind sending out you know behind the foundation of this colony versus that colony um you know for for like a sixth grade class or a fifth grade class you know because they just can't handle it you know right intellectually right so so there is a a sort of a need for that kind of like i don't want to say dumbed down or like you know but like a cartoonized version of history um, and it has its place. And then as you, you know, for those people who are really, really taken away with, you know, the romanticism of, you know, listening to the story of the Mayflower, if they want to go on, right, and study British colonization of North America, and they want to do it professionally, you know, they're going to have a different experience by the time they get to that level in their academic career. So then why, why wouldn't we want to do something similar for ancient history? Especially given that that's something, you know, at least in the U.S. that we don't do a particularly good job of, you know, again, in my experience, um, just in, through middle school and high school, we, you know, my, my experience with European history, um, learning it in, in, in high school was that we always started, you know, with like Charlemagne, you know, as it, we just like totally ignored all of Roman history and, you know, you, I remember very, very vividly, you know, the very, the very beginnings of my AP European history class in, in high school, you know, where the, you're reading the textbook and the textbook says something like, you know, after the fall of Rome, nothing happened, <laughs> right? And after <laughs> that small event, you know. Yeah, after the fall of Rome, nothing happened. And then Charlemagne came around and that's where European history starts. That's where we're going to start our AP Euro class or whatever it is. Yeah. So. It is something that um, I, I think, I don't know. I, I, I haven't really thought that deeply about it until we started having this conversation. What is, what is the most effective way? And maybe it is through doing things like Assassin's Creed, right? Maybe it is through, you know, giving kids um, an idealized or, or, or cartoonified or gamified view of what, you know, major, you know, Greek monuments looked like at the time i don't know yeah yeah yeah. Uh, um yeah i like because i was working with lithodomos and had contact with other like companies or initiatives that were sort of doing this i I kind of got a sense of where this has been heading um Mm. and like yeah i've been i've been out of that game for like a year and some change now so like maybe i don't have the most up-to-date info but uh there's like a couple of things i'd like to say about what you just said too um one one of the more how can i say now like one of the focuses let's just say that that um like one of the directions that this sort of education has been taking is focusing more so on like daily life presentation and something that's been more recent is like illustrations and like uh, illustration books, whether you want to call them comics or whatever, 
or like graphic novels because <laughs> sure, <really> sure. <laughs> um you know they they start off with like oh this is agrippina and agrippina is so and so and like this is the daily life right like there there's a lot more focus on like the sort of the common person and less on like these grand like you know generalizations and epochs and all this like you know this was like the the day of a farmer and like you know in classical athens and like you know before the peloponnesian war or something and then they'll like go through that day and you'll learn some words and you'll learn what the agora was and like what the duties of like a citizen were and da, 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 and all of this and I, I think that is a really good way to go about this uh because one of the like sort of archaic tendencies that we have as like historians and archaeologists um is to like present things um in these like sort of like grand scheme big picture big swaths like we've gotten a lot better about it now and like you know that when i say like we i mean all of like historians and archaeologists who have like written or produced and contributed to the narrative in like the past 300 years basically since like edward given right is, is sure. really what i'm talking about and like super important work but what he did but by like setting that standard like every time i see uh the fall and decline of blank on like youtube i'm like i just want to like i i just i wish i could just take that video down or just change the title right like <laughs> it, it's these like sort of um these sort of like expressions kind of like tie us into what the story will be right like because we have to follow the most like you don't have to follow the mold, right you can present things in a different way not everything has to be like you know the fall of rome like the cliche now is like well rome never really fell right like that that's like that's the thing and i like that that is the cliche because that gets closer towards the truth of what was actually happening and that like these sort of um these sort of transitions they're not they're not like these definite things that like one day things were like one day the sky was blue then the next day the sky was red and the imperial period began it's like no like caesar didn't just become a dictator and like you know set the sort of standard for what like a uh, you know an imperial leader is right like it, it didn't just happen like there was these steps that happened along the way and there was like certain conditions that had to like exist in order for this to happen right because it could have happened before it could happen later and it's important to understand what those conditions were and that's like that's that's kind of been my problem you know like oh the dark ages like mm, they weren't so dark man like it was different times right but like yeah. you know and it, it, it's kind of disregarding what was happening and you might say like well during the dark ages right there's a whole lot of enlightenment going on in the islamic world it's like yeah well that's not europe it's like yeah but the concept of europe didn't exist in the way that it does now right like europa was like a known landmass and people like would use like that word as a reference to the landmass but as like uh you like a culturally unified continent like no that like that didn't exist right that that i think is like an important thing to identify and i think with um some of these initiatives that are being taken they have identified this and so the the subject matter uh you know hasn't changed so much but the way that they're approaching the subject matter i think has changed and that's like that's really important uh as a way to actually make it not just consumable, but also interesting to like an audience at large. Because at the end of the day, like 
you know, we, we know how great Alexander was. We know like Caesar and all this, but like, what about like, what, what about the Matt and the Lidio of like <laughs> period, right? Like yeah. who, who were, who would we have been back then? What would our lives have been back then? And so like, you know, sites like Pompeii, super, super important for like knowing more about this, but you know regardless of the evidence that you have you still need people to interpret it and then present it in like a responsible and interesting way yeah and it, you know i i think that you're you're really hitting on to something here that's important because it, you know i almost look at this like it's two different problems that are sort of related and and similar and you can you can make the mistake of thinking that it's just one problem right mm-hmm. Because we've been talking about this, this um, sort of classics outreach or historical outreach as if the problem has always been one of getting people interested, um, you know, and sort of getting people in the door and, you know, like putting asses in the seats, you know, for, for lack of a better term, right? But I wonder if it's, if, if it's not better to conceive of it as a twofold problem, meaning that on the one hand, we're trying to do outreach in terms of, you know, the, 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 the you know, you're trying to do broad outreach and, and slash education where you're, you're making the argument that, um, or you're bringing awareness to the idea that these, these different time periods existed in the first place. Uh-huh. But you're also doing outreach and education in terms of historical methodology. Um, and that is something that we don't tend to really think about, but I think it's almost, it's, it's at least as important, if not more important, when you start talking about, about ways to conceive of history in the first place. And, and I mean, you know, the example that I can give is, um, uh, and I don't know if you've ever been or not, but, you know, have you ever been to Colonial Williamsburg um, in, in Virginia? Yeah, it's, you know, so like that Colonial Williamsburg is, is, is fascinating, but I mean, you know, any one of those types of living history parks, um, and I don't know if, you know, I, I feel like they, they have examples of that in Europe um, for like, you know, the, the different like Renaissance fairs and, you know, but like when they do a Renaissance festival in Europe, um, it's like a whole different thing than when we do one in, yeah, you know, yeah. in Pembroke Pines in Florida, you know, um, so <laughs> like colonial williamsburg is always interesting to me because you know you're 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 watching historical reenactors do crafts you know and they and they'll sit there and they'll be like this is the this is the milkmaid you know and this is the way that you know cheese is, gets made in you know you know from everything that we know about you know the the colonial period in in virginia you know this is how you would make cheese right and that there would be a woman that come out and she'd milk the cows and do a butter churn and she'd make this and she'd do that on and on and on. you know and they've got that for a candle maker they've got that for the print shop they've got that for whatever right and they have different social strata all walking around you know and there's like a political class and there's a couple of you know people who are doing cosplay as like you know i'm the representative right and i'm concerned about laws and whatever right and then they've got also people you know they they they're doing reenactments of you know of people who are who were slaves right you know people who were enslaved at the time and that's that's you know important in its own way what was the expectation and what was it going to you know look like you know to watch people out there doing agricultural work and you know, in a, in a, in a, in a forced, you know, kind of way. 
Um, and it's and all of these things are are important for getting a sense of what the time was. So to to your example um, of having like Agrippina, you know, the 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 man or woman on the street um, at the time, that is important, and that is something that we haven't really done a good job of in terms of classics. Um, but I also you know think about like what you're talking about here that 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 big that grand view right, of, uh, you know, the Dark Ages, you know, the European Dark Ages, you know, and it's the kind of thing where only very recently am I starting to hear and see accounts of the Dark Ages that are basically trying to drive home the point that, that a lot of this stuff is, is hyper-local, um, yeah. you know, so that, so that your, your conception or, or what the Dark Ages, what the Dark Ages looked like or what the fall of Rome looked like mm -hmm. in England is a fundamentally different thing than what it looked like in Bari, right? You know, or yeah. or in North Africa, right? And that you know, uh, you know, and, and or or even this this change from you know Roman Republican government to imperial government. You know, if you're in the right part of the empire at the right time that this is happening, there's a strong possibility that you would never even know that anything had happened, right? Yeah. You know, if you're if you're if you're a super rural agricultural worker who's you know or even you know again somebody who's uh, enslaved at the time um, somebody without a real political voice or or the expectation of dealing in public life you know what would change you know practically for your experience what would change between uh, you know uh, or or even during the the eras of you know the Roman civil wars if you weren't immediately affected by the Roman civil war of, you know, pick your period, you know, yeah. it, it's not like you're getting copies of, you know, the newspaper that are, you know, giving you casual, you know, breathless accounts of battle and, you know, casualty figures and so forth, right? You know, you're not sitting there tuning into CNN going, oh my God, I can't believe, blah, 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 right? I mean, you know, and, and that is something that I have to give credit where credit is due. And if it feels like the field is starting to, acknowledge that maybe the way that we're conceiving of these periods or have traditionally conceived of these periods, that is the problem, right? Not, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. And, then, I, I, and then how do you communicate that to a wider audience? That's another problem, right? Right. And so I think uh, like it's kind of a necessary step that you have to go through in terms of like building the narrative and the knowledge base to like get to this point. So I, I agree with you. I think the field and a lot of people sort of have like that same uh, issue and are working towards addressing that issue that like we've just been talking about that we also both have right in, in terms of like, all right, but like, you know, what was life really like for like the, the everyday person um, back then? And yeah, like I said, I think you had to kind of go through those steps of like developing the broad strokes and all that is just the issue is like there's a there's always going to be a lag between what like academia is is developing and like the knowledge base and the narrative that's being written and then like the, you know, like the public at large actually consuming it. So like, you know, I, I know Monty Python is like super tongue in cheek and it's like in no way historically accurate. Right. But but one thing that they like really like drive home really well is 
kind of what we've talked about is like how does this affect like what 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 is the history for like the normal people you know and like the holy grail where he's like well i i didn't vote for you you're not my king i didn't vote for you he's like vote for me like what what do you mean but like clearly like that sort of democracy of like you know like voting didn't like exist then in that period but what like that points to is that like things depending on the place were different and you can't just like use this sort of like homogenous like brush to be like oh all of the roman empire was like this like no no it wasn't like most like most common citizens wouldn't have even spoken like latin right like you would have spoken the language that was like native to your lands and like maybe the upper class they would have spoken latin and then like the super upper class they would have spoken greek because that's their like that's their lingua franca right and a thing like addressing these things is super important and what is kind of cool is with like some of these initiatives like Lisa Domos now that lag time we can sort of shorten uh between like what the academic what the new academic standard is and what the new narrative is uh and then like giving that out to the public because like you know, developing a new viewpoint and placing some people in there with like correct gestures and clothing and like a scene that's faithful to like everyday life in like the port of Ostia, right? Like right outside of Rome. Uh, you can do that in like six months and like have like five or six different scenes where you're like, you know, you can even have animations and like sounds and all this. And then for someone who is visiting Rome and like is curious about the history, they're probably going to go to Ostia because it's wonderfully preserved. Right. And now you're giving them a medium for them to like look at this ad. Or if you go to France, like Paris, there's a company there, Timescope. They they have these sort of like VR binoculars. So those like classic style binoculars that you would put a quarter into to like see things. You do that now, but instead of like looking at what's there, it'll show you from that position what things would have looked like in the 1700s, right? Wow. And like, that's yeah. so cool. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So there's things like that. Like we were developing a similar thing for the Tower of David Museum in Jerusalem at Lethal mm-hmm. Domus, right? So the technology and like, not just the technology, but the sort of congregation of these different disciplines is happening now in archaeology and history and like archaeologists and historians are like making headways and they're making themselves part of this conversation because they understand like this is the future right this is how you appeal to the to the audience at large and from my experience working with them and like communicating with some clients the museum spaces this is what this is what the future is for museum spaces too this is why museums like the art and science museum and like Singapore uh, and there's a few of these uh, throughout the world but that's why they're so popular that's why room scale interactive environments like they're they're just popular because they're cool man they're like cool it's cool to go into a big open room and have stuff on the wall and you be able to interact with it and like it's engaging right and a lot of museums they're recognizing this so I know in like I know in the UAE there's like a lot of this work being done, right? They're way ahead of the curve in terms of implementing technology into their museum spaces. I know the British Museum, uh, we were in contact with them about doing actually uh, a sort of like display for 
the Elgin marbles, right? Like there's there's some of the pieces there. And the idea is that the pieces would be on display and like we would then project the rest of what would have been there in like a room scale presentation. So that's one way, instead of like having a tiny little model, right? You have a whole room where then you can show people history, right? Like you don't, they don't have to read. They don't have to sit there for hours. They don't have to do anything that's like mentally taxing. And to be fair, as like a tourist going to someplace, like I also don't really care to read for like hours about this stuff, right? Like I, I just want to like, I want to have fun. I want to go through this thing and like, I want to watch a movie basically, but like without sitting there and watching the movie, right? So these these places there, they're recognizing that this is like, this is their future, right? You can't just have, a glass case display of some like kind of cool object with like a little plaque that's hard to read and only two people can really gather around at a time you know you have to like make this immersive you have to make it interesting and you have to tell a story and not just like the story that's been repeated a hundred times but something that's relatable and that like it, this is still very much in like in in the infancy like this sort of storytelling and this sort of public outreach and engagement, but it is being recognized as the way forward. And there is like a fair amount of actors who are driving this thing forward. So like, you know, if 10 years from now we can revisit this conversation, I think we'll both be really impressed by how much headway has been made into that. Yeah, no, that's, that's true because it's, this, this actually goes to another thing that, that, sort of academic departments have been preaching, but not necessarily practicing very well, which is being quote unquote interdisciplinary. Yeah. Um, you know, because, because to be truly interdisciplinary means, I mean, you know, j- just like what you've been arguing for, I think if you're really going to be interdisciplinary um, that is going to entail, you know, doing other things like, like learning how to code and learning how to, you know, apply this stuff that we are, that we're spending and agonizing, you know, time and energy over and learning how to deploy it in a way that is meaningful because you're, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, that, that has definitely been my experience. And I, I, I think it's safe to say at this point in my life that I've been to more museums than the average person, <laughs> but, you know, um, Every time you go to a museum in the Mediterranean, and it sort of doesn't matter where, because um, I've had this experience in Sicily, I've had it in Italy, I've had it in, you know, in the Levant and, you know, in Israel and, and also in Greece. Um, anytime that you go to a museum in any of those places, uh, one, of the, one of the places where you'll always see a big crowd is, uh, is if that museum has a display of like dice, right, or games, um, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I always, always, always see people crowded around, you know, the dice because it is unnerving when you look at those dice and you're like, they are exactly the same as they are today, you know, and it's like, it really, it really does bring it, the display to life in a certain way. Um, you know, when it's you, relatable. you know, it's relatable and you imagine that, you know, people in antiquity is it, certainly in the Roman context, but I mean, I think in the Greek context too, people love to gamble. Um, I think that is that is one of those like, you know, it's one of those things that's a, that's that's sort of a, a human universal. Um, I don't I don't actually know very much about like ancient gambling in other, you know, civilizational contexts. Like, I mean, you know, like, can you go to museums in central China 
and find ancient examples of like gambling games. And my, you know, my gut reaction is, is like, you probably can, right? Yeah. Just because it's, you know, everybody going all the way back uh, seems to love it. It seems to be transcend culture in a certain way. Very cool in that way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's like a human element, you know, and that's like, that's the thing that I think we're all recognizing needs to be more at the forefront and like more interesting like beyond the technology right beyond like just presenting the like the vr headsets like for example um one one of the really cool sort of implementations of technology that i saw was at the domus aurea and um oh yeah so for like those of you uh who don't know exactly what that is it's like uh it's nero's golden house right and uh it's it's been excavated to a degree and it's open at some times like of the year, like it's, it's kind of like specifically open and you have to get tickets in advance that, that, that we were lucky enough to like do the tour and they have, um, they have these like implementations throughout the, the tour in like different rooms. Like one of them is just straight up like 20 seats or so where like you just sit down, you put on the VR headset and like, it gives you like a two minute sort of experience and then there's like different areas of it that like have these projections of like certain figures or whatever, like that are tied to the, to the golden house. But like the technology was like really impressively um, like managed and implemented. Well, like I think what really sort of like makes it memorable beyond that is like the tour that's being given throughout it. Like, they connected to that specific period and what this place would have meant to like the everyday person right like so they're like yeah this place is grand like the example i'm trying to say is here like if this place existed a hundred years ago the narrative behind it would have been focused on whoa how grand the romans were and that like they had the money and the means to build such an impressive da 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 and like look at the beautiful architecture and like they had domes oh my god isn't that crazy that they could build domes and da 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 like and they they did this all with like just manpower and like ropes and this and that right which yeah like that's all very impressive but the narrative now is more focused on like they built all this and a lot of people were very upset that Nero spent like a shit ton of money <laughs> to build like a huge mansion lined with gold and all of this. And like, you know, shortly after he died, like, you know, a lot of this was repurposed because people like saw this as like a show of opulence and people didn't really like it. Right. Like the narrative isn't anymore on like how grand the Romans were. It's like, no, some, some Romans were like, were really exploiting like some emperors were really exploiting uh you know their their positions and a lot of people got pissed off about it actually and like there were consequences and then that's why you have civil unrest and that's why you have the year of the four emperors and that's why this and this happened like you know it goes more into like what did this actually mean right and i think kind of like really taking it back uh to another moment that really influenced me actually um one of one of the professors at uh, Florida State that Matt and I know uh, is this guy Tim Stover. Really, really cool guy. Uh, great teacher and all that too, for sure. Um, but I remember one of the things that he like he said he was talking about Latin specifically and like the language, and he was like, you know, there is this like beautiful lineage that connects us to 
that time in the world and like we can trace this through our language and you know we can see latin coming into english and all that but like the way he said it and the way he presented the idea was like the stuff that we're studying like it still impacts us today however like however in the substrate it is however like unfelt it actually is like you know the the fact that like a, a, a person still has the name marcus just that like without the romans right like without that being a popular name back then and like still existing to today like there's people who like in greece today whose names are still alcibiades right like one of the most <laughs> yeah. notorious bastards of all time like <laughs> incredible person for all the wrong reasons but like yeah that that's that's the really and to me that's like the sort of like thing the intangible feeling of like once you really understand just how connected all of this is it, it's kind of it's kind of inspiring in a way right like it makes me want to learn more about my world or like the world that i perceive right and like why albania is the albania it is today and like what influence there has been like you know there's these like sort of like political movements of like oh albanians were the first people the Pelasgians, this and that and i i, I like do your thing, believe what you want to believe, but it's kind of like missing the bigger point of like, all of this is, is interconnected, right? Like without the influence that other, like our neighbors have had on us and that we've had on them to a degree, like none of this is the way it is without this. And like, the cool thing is to like trace back what happened rather than like try and force a political narrative and agenda and be like, no, this was, this was the way it was. And I think like, that is like one of the good things about academia is that like that sort of political agenda is rarer and rarer. And within the academic world, like when, you know, someone tries to like force that, like people, like other academics are, are okay with like calling that out. I mean, like, no, you know, that's just like, that's just based in like da, 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 colonialism or whatever, whatever. Sometimes this is abused as well, but you know, the point is that I think we as academics are becoming more aware of like what is important and also how to like discuss what is important. And the more initiatives that we have, like Lithodonos or whoever else it may be, to sort of bridge that gap in like a sort of quick and meaningful way, I think that's great. Like that's, that is the future of this, right? Like we're, we're still going to need the people to like, be hyper specialized and like let us know what you know Thucydides meant in passage like three of book four or whatever whatever but you also need the people like me and you who then will be sort of like the middleman between the hyper specialists and then like just the common person right like I will never know as much as John Marincola knows about Greek historiography never in my life like I won't dedicate myself to it I don't care about it as much as he did right but I'm someone who could like take what John Marincola has said and then mold it into something that means something to the person who like has never like read Greek, right? And I think it's important to have people in each of those positions because if you have like a disbalance of those then like that information is never like developed, a narrative is never written and then it's never like uh, conveyed to just the world at large. Yeah, or or worse yet, it's it's conveyed 
in a bad way. I almost look at academia, I, I, I have to stop and I have to like, you know, be real careful with the way that I formulate this because, you know, I, 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 I don't, and I don't mean it in a bad way or anything like that, but I mean, you know, I, I look at the academy and in a way it is so, so powerful in terms of um, almost acting like a trim tab, you know, like, like it's a, a trim tab on like a big cargo ship. It's when, when ships are really, really big and you're, and you're trying to turn the ship left or right or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like a process to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a rudder, but you can't necessarily just, you know, turn the wheel and the rudder goes like that because you've got so much weight behind it and so much everything else. So there's, there's, a, there's a trim tab. There's like a small rudder that's like attached to the big rudder. And that helps turn the big rudder, which eventually helps turn the whole ship. Academia is that in its own way where, you know, and, and this is the, this is the argument for, you know, why is a philosophy department um, important, you know, and, and why is a philosophy department important? It's because, you know, people are asking philosophical questions in the real world, right? You know, if you're asking questions about, you're asking questions about what is, what is moral and what is ethical is the idea of income inequality um, a, a moral and ethical imperative to address, or is it not, right? And how you answer that question really is going to have a major impact on how important it is to address in the first place, you know, how much political will, how much social will you can drum up behind it. Um, you know, should we answer it in one way and not the other way, it's going to radically affect, you know, government policies, you know, it's going to radically affect, you know, uh, people's perceptions of their own circumstances, you know, you know, the more that the more research you do in a psychology department about, you know, feelings of jealousy, and and what provokes feelings of jealousy, and, you know, that can tie into a question like income inequality, you know, directly, and based on the research that gets conducted, and based on the research that, that happens where you can answer these questions positively or negatively or whatever, and whatever evidence you can find to answer them one way or the other, that evidence in those papers eventually leak out of the academy. And they do have an effect on society as a whole. And I think the same thing is true, you know, in terms of a, a classics department or an archaeology department, you know, just like what you're saying. I mean, if there is a group of people um, you know, the example that comes to my mind is Golden Dawn in, uh, in Greece. Um, you know, it's like a super like hyper nationalist, you know, quasi Nazi party looking thing, you know, which is which is incredible because, you know, if, you, if you're going to talk about a people who like didn't do well or didn't have a good experience with like, you know, with like a, with a far right, you know, uh, fascist government, you know, it's like it's Greece. Right. But but there are certain ideas and certain historical trends that, that these people have, you know, have managed to like hook into um, that exist in the popular consciousness, you know, inside of Greece. And you can whip people up into a, into a frenzy, right? Or even in the United States, you know, the way that the Civil War gets interpreted and the way that the Civil War gets, you know, and there, there's giant swaths of the country that don't believe that the Civil War had anything to do with slavery. Right. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like it, yeah. I was a state's rights issue. And it's like, you know, but they're re- neglecting to say a, the state's right to Absolutely. to 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 own other people. Right. You yeah. know, to make yeah. laws yeah. that allow you to do that. I mean, that's, you know, these academic departments and the and the and the work that they produce, 
from the inside of the department, you know, you can feel very powerless and you can feel, it feels like you're not really doing anything of value sometimes, um, especially when you work for a long time on a paper and the paper doesn't get received well, or you're trying yeah. to publish, you know, and you're putting up with, you know, critics and, you know, reviewers who are telling you that your paper is trash. And, it, you know, it's like, that's part of the game. And that's part of how, you know, we're trying to keep the field honest, um, whether it works or not is a, a discussion for another day. Maybe I'll find another guest and we'll talk you know, about the pain of having your paper rejected, you know, a zillion times yeah. over, but, but whatever, right. I mean, you know, the point still stands that this process of, of making knowledge and making these interpretations and making sure that they get interpreted in the spirit in which they were written that's not an easy thing to do. And, and there are unscrupulous actors out there. There are people out there who have an interest in making sure that the interpretation, you know, is not faithful, right. And, and gets skewed in this way, you know, just in the same way that golden Dawn, you know, is very happy to go to a, uh, an academic department and, and selectively pick, you know, what they want to hear, you know, or if you're, uh, you know, in the U.S. and you don't want to hear about the slavery issue when it comes to the Civil War, you know, you can go and find, you know, whoever is writing whatever American history and, and, and pick and choose and, and try and make the interpretation what you want it to be rather than like what the, the majority of people in the field are, are saying it is. Right. And, and I think that 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 piece right there, that 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 liaisonship between you know, the public and academia is something that we hasn't, I, I don't know that we've actually figured that out yet. And there's still, there is still tension there. And, and I think that doing things like this podcast and, and, you know, doing the kind of outreach that you've been up to, we're still not quite sure whether or not this is the right way to do it, or this is, uh, um, or this is going to, you know, backfire in some kind of, you know, spectacular way. I mean, I, I, I feel like it is, sort of the best way to do it, but it's an open question. I'm thinking that, you know, the, the worst case scenario is that you start misrepresenting what the, what the field is and you're making the problem worse rather than better. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I see to a degree, I agree with like the caution that you have to this, but at the same time, um, we we can't really know if it's like the best way right like right. that that's like that's something that you can only really evaluate after the fact i think um but it's it's one of the like it's a good way and it's important work to be done right like the fact that there's people who are even trying to do this and that there are people who are doing this like whether it's like you know companies with millions behind them or like you know this just a podcast that like started up as like an idea between friends who like had these questions or like wanted to like uh you know address these ideas right it's important just to have people in this discussion and i think one of the really important factors about all of this like regardless of exactly which medium you're in when you're trying to sort of provide some sort of social commentary whether it's historically or like contemporary is to also not be dismissive of the counter arguments in a way that 
how can I put it that like devalues them completely. Like, I, I, I don't mean to say like, oh, well, Golden Dawn has a point, like not, not at all. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm fairly anti-nationalism as a political philosophy altogether. I think it's like really harmful to a degree, but I think the important thing is to like bring them into the discussion, represent what they're trying to do. And then like through discussing the subject matter right that they're discussing so okay for example like let, let me give you something more concrete one of my professors he 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 really doesn't like plato right he's like yeah well you know like all philosophers you know they're just like they're they're buying their own farts da, 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 da. and we, we were talking about this a bit more i was like yeah but like i mean you know you're entitled to your opinion but you can't like deny the impact that plato has had on philosophy like western philosophy but like you know we can say even beyond western philosophy just in general right like plato aristotle all these guys christianity um, right i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. without plato like christianity isn't what it is today right like sure. absolutely like a hundred percent like would christianity still exist like probably right but in the form that it does without plato it just doesn't exist this way right right so you know i talked to him about this he's like yeah well like you know plato's republic was used as like a primer by the nationalist socialist party in germany in the 1920s for like what uh you know like a civilization should be da, da, da. it's like all right well this is kind of a bad faith argument that you're making here. It's like, well, the Nazis use the Republic as like a, a primer for what a ideal society should be. Therefore, like, because the Nazis, we can all agree are bad. Therefore, the like the source material they use is also bad. It's like, well, no, like that's not how this works, right? Like Plato, if you go and read the Republic, first and foremost, like Socrates is all about having like the simple village life without much, right? But it's like, you know, this this guy comes in, he's like, no, but Socrates, I want more. And he's like, all right, well, if you want more, then like here come the next nine books that you're, you know, we're going to discuss about this stuff, right? And my, my point to like not go on too long about this is that we can't just be dismissive of like the other side as like, oh, well, they're just crazy or they're just this, right? Like sort of like the political divide that's in America now where it's like when the other side says something, it's like, oh, all liberals, oh, all conservatives. It's like, no, like, you know, you, you, have to, you have to address that these are like real people and that they're saying these things for like a real reason, right? And then if their reason is malicious and they do just want to be damaging, like identify that, right? But like, you can't be dismissive of that because then what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a position to like have your credibility be attacked because like your argument amounts to just like an ad hominem, right? It's just like, oh, well, this person is crazy. Therefore, anything that they do can't be trusted. Any of the information they use, like, no, no, like speak to the information and how the person is using it and why they're presenting the story in the way they are. And then like, you know, people can form their own opinion on, on that. Like, cause some people like, they'll just still be supporters of that thing anyway. Right. But for the other people, you can present it to them in this like good faith sort of way where it's like, listen, None of us really know the truth, right? Like in history and archaeology, none of us really know 100% undoubtedly the truth about like most of these things. There are some things that like, yeah, in this year, on this day, this thing happened, right? Like everyone says it happened. So like, 
as like short of having a time machine, like this is the truth. But a lot of this stuff is interpretation. And I think that's like, that's the thing that we have to be sensitive to and open with the public to be like, yeah, this is an interpretation, right? But it was done by people who have studied this shit for like super long time. And like, it wasn't a lot of fun, but <laughs> this, is, this is how it got to you, right? So you have to understand yeah. that like, I didn't gather this information because I wanted like your money or something, right? Like I had a passion for this and I really cared about learning this thing. And I want to like present this to the outside world. So like, that's, that's also part of, I think, like our responsibility as the sort of liaisons to like, to faithfully represent the material and say like, Hey, listen, like none of us can really know a hundred percent about most of these things, but as like, someone who studied it and like based on this evidence and like through this rigorous process of like data collection, synthesis and refinement with feedback from other people who are doing similar things. Like this, we can all agree on is the best interpretation that we have at the moment, right? And like our job is to keep making that interpretation better. And that I think is like one of the, if if I would have to point to like the biggest failure and the biggest disconnect between like the outside world and like humanities in general, it's like conveying that point, right? Like when we're presenting information to be like, this isn't a hundred percent fact. And like, we, we can't claim it to be right. And I think like part of the issue is that we have this, like, I, I don't know, like where we get this idea from, or maybe it's just like my impression, but like, we almost feel like we need to be like, no, no, this is the truth. And like, it's indisputable when like, when you look at how academic work is done, it's like, it, it's always disputable. Like that, that's, that's the whole point, right? It has to be disputable, right? Like, cause otherwise it's not really academic. Otherwise it's like, it's not really scientific. If it's indisputable, like this whole like book that you're writing, then like, it's probably not that good of a book or it's just full of bullshit because, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. This sort of touches on a point that I made, or I tried to make anyway, in, an, in another episode, um, we were talking about methodology um, and methodology inside of the classics. And, it, and it's funny. And we, and we actually talked about it um, during this conversation, you know, how, how it is important to be able to communicate methodology as as a as a separate but related you know kind of concept to the 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 facts as they are and not all methodology is created equal that that there are certain methodologies that are more reliable right um than others and that there are certain methodologies that you can use in one context but maybe not in another um and there are certain you know modes of inquiry that more reliably produce true information at the end of them than others right so the 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 example that i give is you know um the idea of creating like a grand theory um a social theory or a psychological theory or whatever and then sort of you know slavishly reapplying that theory to ever more exotic and unrelated um, parts of uh, human experience, right? So, you know, my, the, the one that I pick on constantly is, uh, is, is Marxism, um, because, you know, you can, you can basically find a Marxist reading of whatever it is you want, you know, <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, and that, that is something that has, that has been uh, very permissive and, 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 and like encouraged, you know, in, in various different, you know, uh, humanities departments or humanities fields. 
you know, to the point where you can find a Marxist reading of, you know, what the Roman economy, you know, you can find a, you know, a Marxist reading of, uh, you know, of Shakespeare, you know, you can find a Marxist reading of, you know, you name it, right. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think that what you get at the end of a Marxist reading of the Roman economy is, is actually useful, right? I, I yeah. don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think there are better ways to go about asking and answering that question than by applying a theory that's like totally unrelated and, and, and totally divorced of like the, the context of, of what was going on at the time. I don't know that, that, that doing that is productive, you know? So, so in that sense, right. I mean, that is heavily disputable. Um, you know, when you, when you, when you get the product of something like that, you know, and then in another sense, you know, you're right. Um, let's say that all the evidence that we have, uh, all the literary evidence, uh, points to, and I, maybe the, just an example I'm coming up with off the top of my head here is, you know, um, biblical archeology span was long looking for evidence that Pontius Pilate was real just because, you know, the, the story that's being told in the new Testament is that, there's a Roman procurator or governor or, or somebody, some official that has a, uh, a major hand in this, you know, story of Jesus. Um, so, you know, given that he's supposed to be a historical figure and, you know, and if this, this text is a historical text and given that you've got four different accounts in the four different gospels, you know, and they all mention this guy, we should be able to, find something somewhere, you know, from the contemporary times that says that, you know, Pontius Pilate is, is real. And eventually, you know, they did. Um, and, and it was, I, I think it was in the sixties or the seventies, they found the, the pilot stone. It's a, it's a little inscription that has the, the name Pontius Pilate on it, you know, that came from like the right, you know, context and the right time period, you know, for where you would expect to see um, mm -hmm. the guy have lived. So, you know, so that, that is another kind of thing where you, where you think to yourself, if, if the archaeology and the literary evidence are, are sort of converging on one point, you're making a uh, or you're generating a fact that is uh, a stronger thing uh, or harder to dispute um, than if you couldn't. Right. Um, yeah. if, you know, like like if you if you found, you know, if you had one historical account in one document that was never mentioned anywhere else and you're not able to find any other supporting evidence for it, you know, that is easier to dispute whether or not this is a real reflection of reality versus the other way. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and using that type of methodology and being rigorous in that way, I, I think um, is, is really what we should be aiming for inside of the humanities. Um, and not everybody is, and, and that, you know, but that's, again, that's a conversation for yeah, you know, yeah. another episode of, you know, for sure. And I think that's just like, um, I mean, listen, uh, in, in any period, in any time that like of study, like e even like, you know, to the original academy, right? Like we're, we're talking about like Plato and all this, like there, there will always be that sort of like, uh, you know, the, I don't want to say like counterculture, but like counter methodology, counter whatever, where like, you know, the opposition there, there will, there will always be that sort of thing. But that's, to a degree that's necessary in order for this sort of methodology that you're describing for it to like sort of push itself to be invigorated and to be persistent and like developing right because if you like if you don't have that pushback then like 
you can also fall into the trap where like where academics was in like the 13th century right like you read about like albert magnus and thomas aquinas it's like you know the the scoliast is like well you know like the teacher already knows the thing like the student can't say anything that goes right. against the teacher because the teacher has the knowledge they have the truth and like even if you make a point that is like controversial and thought-provoking and also a good point it doesn't matter like the answer has already been decided this is just a practice in like getting you to there right and like that that's sort of like teaching that's also very dangerous so that's that's kind of that's something that we need to keep in mind as well and it's like you know uh professionals who want to practice what you were talking about like which is the proper way because you're getting closer and closer to something that's verifiable uh and also falsifiable but you you need that sort of pushback you need like the marxist interpretation of the iliad <laughs> to uh, like also have a reference of like all right well you know maybe we shouldn't be using an interpretation of a phenomena as the basis for interpreting another phenomena in like such a haphazard way right like this isn't to say that like the work that Marx did isn't important. Like what, what he did was like vastly important, like even more influential, I'd say, but like, I'm not an anti-Marxist guy at all, but the, like the thing that I think you were talking about is like using Marx's work to then like sort of pointlessly analyze something when really like that source material that could undergo analysis could be like, the methodology of that analysis could be different and then could actually produce something that is substantial and useful and is actually helpful to the field rather than just like another paper that like some edgy 24 year old master student wanted to write <laughs> in order to be like, well, like, you know, things are unfair in the world and like Marx had everything right. So like, I'm gonna, you know, like that, that's just as bad. But we also kind of like need that to a degree, maybe not that specifically, but like that sort of thing to like help us like remind ourselves that like, you know, we we have to be rigorous and we have to like be good about and faithful about, uh, you know, producing good academic work. Because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, it's gonna like eventually in one form or another go out into society, right? Like when, when like Foucault was writing all of these works on like, you know, the, on like the relationship between power and like everything in the sixties and seventies, like, did we know that like those works were going to be so seminal and like determining, you know, like the discussion of like gender philosophy, gender ideas and all this, like, no, like it was, it was important work. And I'm sure academics at that time valued it a lot, but did society in general, value it like no because they weren't even aware of it right and like even now most people like won't be aware of like the influence of Foucault in terms of like identity politics and gender politics and all this but the reality of it is he and like many others like I'm just you know singling him out here like they did have a huge influence on this and like they could have never predicted just what the influence would have been right like Baudrillard could have never predicted what the influence of his work like had on, on like you know mass media right so these are the important things and that's why it's important to be like you know to do work in good faith because it will eventually get out into 
the world and we just need to like make sure that it's not going to be so it's not going to be done so in a harmful way. Yeah, I think, you know, if I can even try to put a finer point on what you're saying here, it's like it's it's having the intellectual freedom is the magic ingredient. Being able to do it both ways um, and not be chastised or uh, or, you know, disincentivized because you never know, you know, you take a risk, you know, you take a uh, a risk in terms of writing a paper or introducing a new methodology. And you're, you're sort of, you're sort of doing this for either your own entertainment or your own intellectual curiosity. You know, you're trying to, you know, answer questions that, you know, you yourself might have when you start to write a paper like that. Um, and, and you say, you know, let's, let's sort of see what happens. And, you know, you're right, not knowing whether or not the results of this are going to be interesting or influential or if anybody's going to, you know, pick up on what you've done and then and and take it somewhere else or, or use it, in, you know, this way or that way. Um, and, you know, the, the magic ingredient, the through line through all of that is having the freedom um, to ask the question one way or the other, right, to apply this methodology or that methodology and not to be... Um, and not to fall into the trap of like orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, you know, again, this, this is like, this is a critique I have of, of the way that classics gets done in the U S um, you know, but it's like, it's a loving critique, right? It's not, I, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way or in a, you know, that c- classics has a habit of, of drawing a box around certain texts, mm-hmm. you know, and saying these texts are the classics full stop. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, yeah. and when you do that, you, you can very easily turn the, the exercise from intellectual exploration, making new knowledge, whatever that means, however you define it. Um, and you can turn that into like what you were talking about before, um, you know, similar to the way that it was in the, in the 13th century. The, the example that comes to my mind is, uh, is the example of Galen um, and Galen's impact on medicine, you know, throughout the the fifteen hundred years after Galen the Galenic corpus was you know was sort of written or you know you're you're left with centuries and centuries and generations and generations and generations of doctors who are are trained with the idea that you can never do better than what's in this book. Yeah, Galen found all the answers. He answered all the questions. We we came up with this stuff in seventy, you know, or, or seventy, you know, in 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 one seventy, one eighty, you know, CE, one ninety CE. Um, the uh, Galen lived for a long time, presumably, right? He lived into his eighties, um, and I, I want to say that you know we we we're not one hundred percent sure when he died. Um, probably in the reign of uh, Caracalla, so maybe maybe you know after two hundred, at some point, you know, maybe two ten to eleven. From that point forward medicine is frozen. And, yeah. and, you know, and if, and if you as a young medical student are, are, you know, doing something like you're treating a wound um, or you're treating a head injury and you find that there's a, that, that the anatomy that you're looking at, you know, in this person that you're trying to treat is, is somehow different from what Galen is talking about in the Galenic corpus, then you're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, you know, the, the problem is, is that you found a difference, right? Not that there is a difference. The problem is always with the person who is deviating from the orthodoxy and not with the orthodoxy, you know, and, and, and creating that kind of space and letting that 
and making sure that that space stays that way, where it's where it's a it's not an orthodoxy, it's not an institution like you know the 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 Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church that is trying to seal these you know procedures in time and and freeze them forever so that they're just eternal and unchanging. That is a whole separate um, question, and that's a whole separate problem um, yeah. that I think that I think that needs a whole episode um, of its own. Maybe we'll come back, you know, maybe we'll have you back and we'll talk about that one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, I would very much like that's, I, mean, I know this episode was meant to be more about like, you know, how does classics like stand a chance of connecting with like the outside world and like, what's the future of it like? And, you know, sort of from my experiences, but yeah, I mean that like what you just said is also like part and parcel of like that question, because it's like, it's the first part of the question, like how does classics, right? So like classics is defined by the classicists and the things that we study. So how do we be good classicists and make sure that like, you know, we, we do what you were just saying, like keep an intellectual curiosity and like openness to it. And like, not like one of my sort of like big gripes was that when I, when I would mention something like, let's say, uh, first century ce uh gandharan like buddhist uh like tombs uh or like caskets right like having like iconography of like the buddha and uh heracles or hercules uh sort of figure as like the like the buddhist protector the vajrapani like the club bear or lightning bear you know, I would like bring that up and be like, well, okay, here we go. This is like, this is the, what, what was it called? I think it's like the Maha Nirvana, like the great Nirvana. It's like, it's the scene depicting the Buddha's death and there's like his followers. And then there's like the Vajrapani, uh, the club bearer. And clearly in this like Gandharan incarnation where like we know there was like Greek, Greco-Macedonian people who lived here for a while. And like they had this influence and they like, you know, they introduced this sort of art style. And like we have this figure with a club with like a lion pelt over the shoulders. It's like it's it's Hercules, right? Like in the Western iconography, this is Hercules. And like maybe this isn't exactly Hercules, but at the very least, we can say it was inspired by Hercules. I'm like talking about this like specific, you know, uh, art style in a specific period. And the response I get is like, oh, well. Have you looked at like the Roman imperial caskets and the iconography on those? Like, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's like, I, I don't mean to like be dismissive of that like suggestion or all that, but to me, it is like it, that, like that moment. And like, it's why it's still stuck with me like six years later, right? Like, it was like six years later, almost to the day, actually. It's like, to me, it kind of like missed the point of like, the thing that I was bringing to the table, right? Like when, when, when other people brought their stuff to the table, the same thing happened to them. Right. Or like maybe they were allowed to have that discussion, but it's like the point here isn't for me to like link this to like Roman, uh, like Roman Imperial iconography and like graves and all that. Right. Like the, the point is that like, Hey, this phenomenon occurred and it was different from what was happening before. And we have these like pieces of data. Right. So like, be more interested in what is being discussed like not just what i'm discussing but what other people are discussing and like be more open to like new information entering your like your hard drive of like you know memory and knowledge and all that and like be more open to just learning instead of like needing to bring it back to like what you know specifically like 
like be okay with there not being like a direct link or like what you know isn't like you know something that you can contribute just be like whoa that's really cool like tell me more right and i think that was kind of missing from my experiences but i think also that sort of mentality when you have that sort of like intellectual curiosity and openness and like willingness to be you know interested in what other people have i think it lends itself to then like knowing how to communicate that to other people who are interested because like when you're when you play both roles of that like dialogue you understand better like what each role like wants and what they're interested in in that so that that's also a part of all of this and uh yeah i mean overall like listen the classics and humanities and all this is like it's really cool stuff right like we we get to learn about the past we get to learn more about ourselves and like why you know like why your last name is lupu right and like being like the product of like romanian immigrants who like you know who you grew up in florida you know it reveals a lot about the world around us and in one way or another it's gonna like it's gonna continue like the classics will never really die whether like it ends up being just like a couple of nerds who study this stuff in their like bedrooms or whether there's whole institutions it won't ever like really die but if we can be responsible and if we can be like forward thinking and, and like you know if there's any archaeologists who are going through the paces or historians who are going through the paces of what we've been talking about, like, you know, engage with the material. Don't like get discouraged and demoralized by all of this, right? Like there, this is a problem and there is a solution. And so engage with the material, like go and learn some new technological skill, man. Like go and learn Python, go and learn Ruby on Rails, go and learn how to make maps in GIS or make 3D models in Blender, right? Like this is like, that's how Simon Young, the founder of Lithodomos, started Lithodomos. As his like PhD dissertation, he made 3D renders of a couple of sites in Turkey because his whole thing was about Roman uh, urban planning, right? And from that, like learning how to model things himself and creating a few viewpoints, you realize like, whoa, what if we modeled like all of the things? What if we modeled all of the ancient world and like showed everyone what all of this stuff looked like? And that's how these ideas are born, right? It's not through getting discouraged and distancing yourself. It's from like getting more into it and like acquiring new skills and figuring out how to adapt those skills to like, you know, the world at large before books were enough, but now we have like incredible smartphones in our pockets that we can do so much more with. So that's kind of my like capstone to all of this is like, don't, don't be a, don't be a fossil, you know, don't, don't just do what's always been done. Like try and ask more questions and learn new things and then figure out how you can combine all of those into something new and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Easy, easy to say difficult to do, right. Is, is what I'm learning. Right. I mean, it's, it's, but you're right. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I, and I think it's very well said. And I think it's, um, I think if there is any kind of takeaway, you know, to this, I mean, that, that, that's probably it. Um, Lidio, I, I mean, I, I, I want to say, uh, I, I think we've done two hours more at yeah, this point, like two and a half, yeah. two and a half. Um, is there, is there anything that you want to, uh, anything that you want to, uh, to, to sort of leave us any final thoughts other than that last one or, or, would you like to, uh, you know, tell us what you're working on right now with your, uh, 
with because I just because I know I know what you I know what you're doing over there and it's and it is it is it's great and you know if you want to take the take a minute to to sort of you know shout out your your company I mean you know by all means go ahead and do it I mean I I, I don't know how you know, we, we 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 haven't we haven't really worked out the uh, you know th- this isn't exactly a giant platform just yet but I mean you know if you want to get in on the ground floor yeah you know, yeah, yeah by all means yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, after all that I've said, like, uh, you know, maybe to some of the people listening, they'll have a laugh at this, uh, considering <laughs> what I'm doing now. But yeah, basically, I'm in Albania now, like, uh, you know, where I was born, where my family's all from and all that. Um, and I brew beer and kombucha. <laughs> so, you know, totally, totally living what I preach. No, I mean, like I said before, because uh, of COVID and all that the situation with Lithodomos, uh, the whole job situation ended for me. And otherwise I would have still been doing all of that and more. Um, the reason why I'm even doing while, why I'm brewing kombucha and beer and all that is it, like, it is tied back to this, you know, of all, of all things. Like I remember in Pessinus on my first excavation, excavating a pithos and like learning about ancient fermentation techniques. And I had like, I'd worked in kitchens and stuff throughout university to like pay the bill. So I had some sort of culinary background, but like, I was never like a chef. So just learning about how people like live fermentation, super, super, super important uh, for civilization. Like without it, honestly, we probably don't survive as a people, right? Like food preservation, like before refrigeration, fermentation, that, that was it, right? Like fermentation and dehydration through like salt. That's how you preserve food for the winter and shit. Otherwise you just don't live. Like there's just not enough food. You have to go and kill animals. Like you won't be as like populated and productive of a society. So like through my study in classics and archeology, span I like learned more and more about this stuff. And when I had that like open period in my life after Lithodomos to like figure out all right what am I going to do next it's like it kind of came naturally I was like I was already making kombucha and I was like well why don't I just like make more of it and sell it to people and like you know like it it ultimately it's like it's all tied to that to me I kind of like you know I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna romanticize this and be like I'm connected to the people of the past or anything but you know essentially like every time I make kombucha it's like it's it's how people have been doing it for like over 2000 years right it's like the same process whether i'm like scaling it up a bit or not it's like it's the same shit man it's like it's the it's that culture it's the tea it's the sugar and like boom you get a like fizzy vinegary tea drink that's delicious and like good for you and all that so my my like my work with classics and humanities and all that is like it's never gonna be done i'm always gonna be like uh a sort of like, I don't know what you would call it, a proponent and someone who's going to like spread the gospel in whatever way I can, whether an it's an ally, like, a cheerleader, an ally. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to be an ally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, what, whatever that capacity will be, it's like, I'll do, I'll do what I can. And uh, you know, when people have questions about ancient economy or greco buddhist or like a greek word like i'll, I'll be there to you know <laughs> actually but uh <laughs> otherwise you know now i'm just exploring uh, another world and uh learning learning more about its history you know like beer history there's something that's actually really deep and interesting but you know not there's not too much available on it so maybe one day i'll be a part of the podcast again and we can talk about beer history 
Well, you're certainly always welcome to come back. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to everybody who's, you know, who is gracious enough with their time um, to, to be part of this, you know, as we, as we, you know, sort of go through this first season's worth of interviews and, and, you know, little, I don't even know what to call the standalone episodes, little mini essays, you know, it's just sort of my ramblings and my thoughts about, you know, whatever the topic is. It's very gratifying that anybody would, uh, would say yes to this, um, to this idea um, to come on and, and sit here and put yourself out there in a, in a public kind of way and, 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 and talk, you know, at length um, because it is, it is kind of, you know, difficult and I struggle with it still, you know, does anybody, would anybody care? Does anybody care or would anybody be interested in anything that I have to say about anything? And it's sort of, it, it would be nice if they did. Um, but you know, you don't, you don't really, you don't really know until you put it out there. And, you know, so, um, so thank you. Uh, and, and you are always welcome back. And I, you know, I'm, I'm certain that we're going to be able to have more interesting conversations like this in the future. So, I, I guess, uh, should I, should I sign off? Should I, should I bail us out of here? Yeah. I mean, thank you for having me and indulging me on talking about this kind of stuff too. So, you know, and, uh, you know, if you're ever worried that do people really care, just know that there's worse podcasts out there with great, <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, just believe in yourself and, uh, keep, uh, keep doing the mad loop thing. I mean, yeah, people keep, care. People want to keep, keep casting. All right. Well, keep, keep casting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah. You know. All right. Well, with that, you've been listening to the Matt Lupu podcast. Um, I'm still your host, Matt Lupu, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.